It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. That was the sound of an avalanche. Welcome to this bonus episode of Range. I'm Julia Ritchie. And I'm Amy Westervelt. We know, we know, it's summer, but hear us out. This was an incredible snow year where we live in the Sierras, thanks to El Nino. Yeah, not enough uh, to get us out of this, like, pesky drought that we're in, but certainly enough to make the ski resorts and ski bums very happy. Yes, and because of this massive snow dump, there was a noticeable uptick in the number of people hurt or even killed in avalanches this year. Also people missing, many of them in the backcountry just outside of resorts. The Sierra Avalanche Center, which issues these daily advisories on avalanche danger in our region, has been really vocal this year about the intersection of the backcountry boom and avalanches. Apparently, somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% of avalanches are triggered by humans. Yep. And this year, there were more than 70 avalanches observed in the Sierra region alone. Both avalanches and avalanche-related deaths are up compared to 20 years ago. Which is scary. So we thought we'd talk to a few experts about this season and what we learned from it. Here's Don Triplett, executive director of the Sierra Avalanche Center. There's people leaving resort boundaries and skiing outside the ropes and then entering into the backcountry, which anything outside the ropes really is backcountry. Um, and they're doing so without the preparation and the skill that's needed to do so safely. And so our big education push has become that AVI awareness where you know, we're telling people you need to go get formal avalanche education. I also talked to a guy named Ben Spillman about this. Ben is the outdoors reporter for the Reno Gazette Journal. And he's not only been covering the backcountry boom, he's actually starting to dabble in it himself. It gets you out and away from the resorts. And so there's that appeal. You know, it just has like kind of the scenic appeal. And bigger companies have been getting into kind of sponsoring athletes. And there's been ski films that have been featuring it more prominently, kind of that version of the sport. And so I think there's a little bit of that to it. Um, The equipment has really evolved. So you don't have to be as good of a skier as maybe you would have had to have been 15 years ago. Uh, They have really improved bindings so you can click your heels in you know when you go ski downhill um, typically if you're at a resort you you um, your heels are clicked into the binding all the time you ski down to the lift the lift takes you up you ski down again Um, in backcountry historically it's been a lot of free heel telemark free heel style which is a different style of skiing it requires a little bit more skill um, because you need to have your heels free to get up the hill and then you need to ski down with your heels free. I'm not a free heel skier, but with advances in technology, they've gotten uh, bindings that can do both. You can click out of them for going uphill, and then you can click your heel in for going downhill, so it's a little bit more like just, you know, skiing at the resort. All right, let's, uh, I'm going to start skinning up. That sound you hear is Ben in the backcountry. I also had our colleague Sydney Giroux record herself with her husband Josh in the backcountry because there was no way in hell I was going to go try it myself. Yeah, me neither. As you can tell from the heavy breathing, (laughs) Sydney, a lot of time is spent hoofing up mountains to find that good line. 
And besides just the workout benefits, Triplett also credits the surge to what he terms, quote, armchair courage, coupled with a proliferation of GoPro videos dedicated to showing off extreme feats. Part of me thinks this trend is really cool, and the other part just makes me kind of roll my eyes, especially the GoPro and social media part. For sure. I often hear skiers say it's cheaper, too, than buying a season pass at a resort, but even Ben disputes this notion. When it comes to outdoor sports, anybody who says one thing is cheaper than the other, I I don't know, because there is like a money (laughs) hole that you can go into for any sport, whether it's mountain biking, Mm -hmm. skiing, you name it, there is a giant money hole you can dive yourself into. And I would say backcountry skiing is similar. Um, You're not buying a lift ticket. That is true. Um, You are buying the avalanche protection gear. That's probably going to be, you know, three, four hundred bucks all in. Um, You're probably going to want a good pack because you're carrying all your stuff with you uh, as opposed to at the resort where you can just leave it in the car skiing. If you need something, you go get it. Uh, You know, and a pack, a good pack is going to cost you in the hundreds of dollars. Uh, You're going to need skins for your skis, which you know, 80, 100 bucks, whatever that is. So you're already up to 1,000. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and easy. And if you need new bindings for your skis and if you want separate skis for backcountry, I mean, I would say it's the difference is it's kind of a lot of upfront cost. But then over time, they kind of, uh, you're not spending that money over and over again once you buy something. You know, it's interesting. As a beginner backcountry guy, according to Triplet, Ben is less likely to get into trouble with avalanches than an advanced skier. Why? I'll let him explain it. You have more familiarity, you're exposed to it more often in your decision-making. You know there's this situation in the snowpack, like say there's moderate or considerable hazard for avalanches in certain aspects at certain elevations. And you may know that and you may identify the problem, but your decision-making skills and your communication skills with your partners is typically what is becoming the problem. And so people are choosing to expose themselves to risk, even though they know there's a risk there. And so the big push these days is actually the decision-making process and that kind of communication process between your ski partners Mm -hmm. that either keep you out of harm's way or put you in harm's way. One story that surprised a lot of people this year was when pro skier JT Holmes got caught in an avalanche near Lake Tahoe while skiing back in January. Luckily, he was with eight other people in the backcountry, so they managed to dig him out. Ben Spillman actually wrote about it. That was a, you know, a relatively, for him, as a, you know, big mountain skier, that was a relatively tame trip. They were just going out uh, out of uh, Squaw Valley to do a little half-day kind of venture with a couple of friends and shoot some uh, film, and they wound up triggering an avalanche and... Uh, J.T. Holmes got caught in it. He was buried. Fortunately, his friends were there and were able to promptly dig him out. Otherwise, it might have been a much more tragic ending. So, yeah, that does that does happen. So besides checking the daily avalanche forecast, what else should folks in the backcountry be doing? Buddy system, first and foremost. A lot of skiers carry something called an avalanche receiver or beacons on them, which sound like this when they're activated. Our colleague on Gray interviewed a guy named Chris McConnell, who's the president of Tahoe Nordic Search and Rescue, on why they're so effective. So as a team of skiers, if I was skiing the backcountry, someone got caught in an avalanche, they had an avalanche transceiver on, your best chance of success for recovery or um, survival is to have your friends find you using their transceivers, right? So you, you switch that into search mode. I get a location. I use that to pinpoint your location. I use an avalanche probe to confirm it. 
we we dig and excavate you out and and people have a you know pretty good chance of survival if your team has that if you have an avalanche transceiver on and your team doesn't have that or you get buried without friends there to recover you it's uh, it's going to be tough for you to survive but you have a good chance that someone like a rescue team could then come in and find you Search and rescue professionals are also looking at drones, which could speed up searches and make them safer for volunteer teams. McConnell talked about this in connection to a tragedy we had at another nearby resort this season, where the body of a 23-year-old ski instructor named Carson May was recovered six weeks after he was caught in an avalanche in the backcountry. It's the early days for drones. The deployment and search and rescue, you're seeing uh, agencies around the country start to dabble in it. I think it's limited success, but the applications show promise in ideal environments. In our environment, for the primary search season in the winter, during blizzards, these are really difficult conditions. You're talking about very heavy snowfalls with, you know, in, inches, if not feet per hour. It, 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 it becomes a very difficult proposition to put an aerial vehicle into the uh, environment without it crashing. So the likelihood of a drone today, given technology to be able to fly in those environments, is really low. On a bluebird day with calm winds, um, it's, it's doable. Then you factor topography and geography, you know, steep canyons, cliffs, uh, heavy tree environments. It's a very challenging environment for drones. So we, as a team, Tahoe Nordic's looking at them. We've had a couple of folks approach us about wanting to partner with us. And it's really the same, you know, story that it's the early days. And in the right environment, if we had a, a missing person in, uh, in Washoe County out in the middle of the desert, and I needed to cover a big area quickly, you know, with the right thermal image camera, you might be able to come up with a, an interesting result. And it'll, it's definitely in our future. So I think the days are numbered before, you know, drones are being applied in search and rescue broadly. In the winter environment, in the backcountry conditions, I still think that is challenged for quite some time. You know, now that I think about it, since our first episode focused on a female-led snowboarding manufacturer, it kind of makes sense that we bring our first season full circle with the snow. Totally. It's been a wild, crazy winter. For the record, I did go skiing once this winter at a resort, and I didn't break anything. Progress. No backcountry for you. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, summer is just around the corner, so we should probably tell our listeners that tomorrow we'll be releasing our last episode of our first season on the cult of Tesla. Woohoo! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're just now tuning in for the first time, make sure to subscribe and binge listen. Do it. And while we're at it, <laughs> Julie and I were interviewed for two podcasts about our first season and how it went. If, like us, you love VH1's Behind the Music, and I really do, I love it so much, <laughs> then you should definitely check out the Podcast Digest and Whamu's The Big Listen to hear us talking about the new American West. Those episodes drop May 22nd. And today's episode was produced by me, Julia Ritchie. And me, Amy Westervelt. All of our original music was produced by the talented Mr. David Whited. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes, or you can find us on the Stitcher app. Our partner is High Country News, a magazine focused on Western issues. Check them out at hcn.org. And if you have an idea for a show or want us to send us your sweetest backcountry GoPro vid, send us a note at howdy at rangepodcast.org. For more frequent updates on our show, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye. Bye.
Can I just tell you that every person that I've interviewed in Tahoe this year for Range or Reno Public Radio, when I ask them, like, because it's like winter and there's snow out, when I ask them if they've been skiing a lot, they all do the same thing and they go, well, uh, I ski the bad country. (laughs) (laughs) Do they whisper when they say (laughs) Kind of. It's like this low tone where I'm just like. All right. Do they, as you know, how in hiking they have people have trail names? Do people have backcountry names? I don't know. I should ask that. That'd be funny. I bet they do. Yeah. We, Bobcat Bill. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. Trailhead Terry. <laughs> um, Ridgeline uh, Randy. We can just keep going. 